on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. I think what, what I bring to it is is a daily uh, perspective, a daily velocity, you know, daily energy. I don't take breaks. And I don't really because the city doesn't. And I think the reason that more people don't try to do this job is because it's so mentally and physically demanding. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 136 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone for checking out the last episode of the show, featuring the first ever Jeff Does Vegas Ask Me Anything. I had an absolute blast stepping out of my comfort zone and answering your questions about, well, anything. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 135, Ask Me Anything. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. On to the show. When you want to find out what's going on in the Las Vegas entertainment world, there's only one guy you need to turn to, and he's my guest for this episode of the podcast. John Katsalametis is the author of Cats, a daily column in the Las Vegas Review Journal that covers everything and anything to do with entertainment in the city of Las Vegas, both on and off the Vegas Strip. John was kind enough to join me to chat about his beginnings in the world of journalism, how and why he moved from writing about sports to writing about entertainment, some of the big stories he's broken, and much, much more. Please enjoy my conversation with John Katzlametis. I feel like I was born to be in Vegas, but I was not born in Las Vegas. Um, my uh, original hometown is Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, both sides of my family are, are from Pocatello. Uh, I was actually born in Pullman, Washington, oddly enough. It was a kind of a fluke. My dad was going to veterinary school at Washington State University. University, and I was born there, but I haven't been back to Pullman, Washington since I was two years old. Uh, families in Idaho. Uh, my dad had a veterinary practice there in Pocatello called the Community Animal Hospital when I was a child, and all through my early years. And we worked at the hospital, and we were very active in the community there. My mom ran the, the business side of it, and then we uh, he sold his practice, and we moved to uh, bought land in uh, Chico, California, in that area, Northern California, north of Sacramento, in the San Joaquin Valley, and we grew. Uh, we had almonds and walnuts. Uh, property that was kind of that was the family business for several years there so I grew up the second half of my life after age 13 in Chico California and my claim to fame there one of them is that I went to the same high school as Aaron Rodgers of the Packers he's his family's from up there also so uh, Pleasant Valley High School so right after high school I started working at the Chico Enterprise Record as a sports writer I was 18 years old and uh 
uh, did that for seven years, moved to Reading, California, was a sports writer in Reading for uh, five more years, and then was skyhooked out of Northern California by the Las Vegas Review-Journal in uh, 1996, was a sports writer for about two and a half years at the RJ, moved to the Las Vegas Sun and Greenspun Media Group, where I covered everything but sports, and grew out my writing and editing and uh, did all kinds of different things, magazine writing, digital writing, some video, and uh, started the Cats Report in 2009, which is what Cats is today, and I came back to the Review Journal in 2016. So that's the that's that's the the trajectory. But when I go when I go to what I consider home, my original home, it's Idaho, Pocatello, and uh, also in Boise. I have a lot of family in Boise, Idaho. So what was it that got you into journalism? I know for me, getting into the world of radio. It was an interest in music, and and I was always kind of fascinated about what was going on behind the scenes and and really wanting to know how it all came together. What was it for you that steered you towards this world? You know, more so, I I think I was really, uh, I liked writing a lot. I really enjoyed just writing. Uh, from a very young age, I, I had I, I found that I had some some ability to do that. I went to a Catholic school in Pocatello, and and uh, the nuns <laughs> there realized that I had some aptitude. And I had uh, one t- teacher in particular who was not a nun uh, uh, in fifth and sixth grade who saw that I had this ability and worked with me on it. And some very good uh, instructors in high school as well, middle school, high school, junior high, high school. And I liked writing, and I was also very athletic. I was into sports. So it became natural that I would want to, you know, create a position in that world and that in those cultures, you know, to write report in about sports. So that's really what got me into it. But I really loved chronicling what was going on. I liked making sentences and and uh, creating stories, really. And uh, the the journalism fascination grew from that. Um, I remember watching all of the movie All the President's Men at a very young age, and it was very fascinated by. Um, by that process. And I'll tell you one thing that happened to me when I was, when I was younger. Um, I don't think I've ever actually told this story this way, but I, I used to go to basketball camps a lot, you know. Uh, I was a, a good basketball player when I was a teenager. And so we'd go to these basketball camps, and one was run by Rick Barry, who was a, a superstar with the Golden State Warriors. And one of his guest players one year, they used to bring in star players, was a guy named Marcus Johnson. Marcus Johnson played for the Milwaukee Bucks, and he was a superstar at UCLA. And he came in to talk to us. And he opened up his session uh, after he gave a tutorial about ball handling and, and, you know, some of the fundamentals about shooting uh, fundamentals. He asked uh, for some questions from the from the camp. One of my friends asked Marcus Johnson for his top five players in the NBA. He wanted his his all star lineup. And this is back when Larry Bird was a superstar and Magic Johnson was just in the league. So he said he started to answer the question and everybody was very it was kind of hinging on it because Marcus Johnson was an all star himself. And he started and he says, are there any reporters in the room? (laughs) And we all laughed and I turned to my friend who asked the question. I go, that's a pretty cool thing. You know, I said, it would be cool to have a job where Marcus Johnson is aware of your job, even in an environment like that. And he laughed and he goes, cause I was working at the school newspaper in those days. He goes, yeah, he goes, you, you might have a scoop here. <laughs> so Marcus, John, Marcus Johnson proceeds to name his uh, all-star team. It was, and he, it was um, magic Johnson. I think Isaiah Thomas, 
Kareem and himself and Larry Bird at forwards. And everybody went, ooh, because that meant he left Dr. J off the top five. <laughs> and I hit my, my friend. I said, he left Dr. J off the top five. <laughs> and we're like, we thought it was such a big deal. But the fact that he was like, he was going to give out news that he didn't want it to be reported really impressed me. You know, I just thought that's a prominent thing when you're in somebody's head like that. So uh, that, that was that, that stuck with me, that particular moment. So you started working in the world of sports writing. How did you make the move into entertainment? Because, of course, that is your wheelhouse now. You are the entertainment guy in in Las Vegas media. So uh, what was behind that shift? Well, it was very gradual. You know, I was a sports writer for a long time before I ever worked professionally outside of sports for about 14 years. And I was at the Review Journal and they hired me and I was covering UNLV's basketball program. And, uh, and uh, that was my main beat, the running Rebels. And then I was also covering the opening of the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Uh, and then some golf. You know, I covered Tiger Woods' first professional victory and, and some boxing with the, the Holyfield uh, Tyson fights here, you know, was helping with coverage of that. I, frankly, I just burned out. You know, I really burned myself out at the Review Journal in those days. And they saw it and I saw it. And uh, I had to I had to change. I had to get into a different environment to to continue my career. Otherwise, I would have completely imploded, to be honest, at that, at that point in my life. So I I moved over to the uh, to the um, Greenspun Media Group and took a took a job as a feature writer in the feature section. And the idea was that uh, to me was to kind of restart my whole career at that point. And I uh, which I did. And uh it became that I was covering, I was using the skills that I developed as a sports writer in other areas. And when I became a feature writer, I was writing about all different types of human interest stories. I gravitated toward performances and performers because I was really interested in looking at a show, breaking down a show, just like you would a game, and knowing the personalities behind that that performance production or, or headlining show and uh, telling the story that way. So I really got into it that way. It was over time, but you know, I was an arts and enter- the, uh, the arts and entertainment editor for a long time too at the, at the Las Vegas sun. So I really moved into that. It didn't come immediately. It just kind of evolved in that direction. I never planned it. I would have been fine to be, to continue to be the arts and entertainment editor at the Las Vegas sun. And definitely um, what happened there was we, the, the publication, as you know, became part of the Review Journal, uh, delivered as part of the Review Journal as part of our joint operating agreement. So the full service afternoon paper became a section of the paper. No more arts and entertainment section. So I had to find other things to do and write about. And that's basically how the cat's column happened. But it was a real evolution. You know, it was not planned. So then how is it that you became, quote unquote, the guy in the world of Vegas entertainment reporting? Uh, I mean, even before I met you, um, I knew who you were. I was aware of your work as a a person that visits the city frequently and and pays attention to what's going on in, in Vegas media. How did you manage to get the profile that you've got? You know, it's interesting. I don't know. There's others who do a lot of really high quality reporting in Las Vegas on the entertainment beat. My friend Brock Radke over at The Sun is a he's I worked with him for a long time and Greenspun Media Group does a really good job. He's a bona fide journalist. I like him a lot. Uh, There's others out there who do it. I think what what I bring to it is um, daily is a daily uh, perspective, a daily velocity 
you know, daily energy. There's a lot. I don't take breaks and I don't really because the city doesn't. And I think the reason that um, more people don't try to do this job is because it's so mentally and physically demanding. Frankly, it's very uh, taxing on you to, to keep ahead of Las Vegas. So a lot of people just say we're going to do, you know, certain a certain type of coverage, but not try to cover the whole thing. I try to cover everything from Adele to the woman who plays Adele in the Legends show and every all of that landscape in between. You know, I uh, on Friday night, I was at uh, Kenny Davidson's uh, show at the Piazza Lounge uh, doing a charity thing for the American Cancer Society where all the singers in town of these, you know, Las Vegas singers came in and we raised money. This weekend, I will be uh, at ZZ Top and Aerosmith and, uh, you know, probably Luke Bryan. Okay. And uh, those are, that's, that's the, that's what it is. I think what, what makes me prominent is simply because I am so uh, available and I'm so, I'm very productive. And you don't have, I learned a long time ago that if you work hard uh, in this field or any other, if you really work hard, uh, people will respect that regardless of how much talent you have. If you continue to press the agenda, people will at least respect that. And, uh, and in Las Vegas, it's for me, it's an easy thing to, to, to get my head around because I, I love what I do so much. I mean, I can't imagine that there's another city anywhere in the world other than maybe Los Angeles and New York to a degree where you would be able to do the type of job that you're doing, where you're covering entertainment every single day yeah i haven't seen too many jeff i i haven't been i would say new york would be somebody when i was visiting new york right before the shutdown um and and, and actually when during reopening i was back there in december of uh, 21 um somebody asked me that question while i was in new york i was i was back there uh covering a show uh at carnegie hall and uh and, and hanging out with there's a lot of las vegas people there and I found that if I were to live in Manhattan, for example, I could probably do this and cover uh, the Broadway scene and uh, some of the other off-Broadway haunts, like Don't Tell Mama, where, where Kenny came from, those types of places. And really, I could probably do that uh, and make that a base beat and then do work around the New York boroughs. That would be possible because you have arena shows. You have Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. You know how it is. And uh, but that there aren't. New Orleans has a great live uh, entertainment, live music, especially vibe. Nashville, Tennessee, also. But I don't know. Las Vegas has so much variety, and we do so much, so many production shows, and just the, the Smith Center for the Performing Arts itself could be a full time beat. Now they do shows almost every night at one of their venues. Um, I w- I've, I'll tell you, I've been really built to do this. You know, I, I, that's that's what I tell everybody. You know, there's, it's a unique position. It's not a position that was um, that it was a position that I created. It's a beat style that I created and took over to the Review Journal. It wasn't. We had a three a columnist, the great Norm Clark, but um, as far as doing multimedia and doing things every day is what I've brought to the to the to the beat. And as you say, I, I love the fact that with your column, you aren't just covering 
the big shows, the big residencies, the huge arena shows or stadium shows like um, so many other columnists do, not just in Las Vegas, but but elsewhere across the country. You are out into those smaller venues and you are covering those smaller shows. And again, that's something that I really do enjoy about what you do. Yeah, I think, um, and I've, I've said this, an example is uh, last week I went over to a place, a venue called Cheap Shot. It's on Fremont East, just off the Fremont Street experience. It's like kind of like our off, off the Midway or off Broadway or off off Broadway uh, uh, hospitality, retail and entertainment uh, boulevard. And uh, I was there talking to a woman named Amy Saunders who goes by Misbehave. And she's a very, she's an excellent uh entertainer she's one of the most famous sword swallowers in the world for starters she's just a great uh kind of carny-esque comedian and she had the misbehaved game show which was an improv game show that uh, was divided up the crowd and she kept score and had contests inside that that she made up on the fly brilliant woman and she um she started a show called mavericks inside the cheap shot cheap shop did cheap shot is a discotheque piano bar does other shows but Mavericks is the the core of that business, and I've covered it, and it's a lot of variety, a lot of uh, burlesque-style acts, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, adult comedy, raunchy comedy, and she does uh, some numbers. There's a lot of, there's some, uh, a very good reggae number in it, variety show. And I'm in there with another, with about 80 people off Fremont East in downtown Las Vegas, and I said then, and I've said since that place opened um, earlier this year that if we're going to be taken seriously as the entertainment capital of the world, we have to support that show, that venue in the, with the same zeal as we do Adele or Celine Dion or you know, Katy Perry or you name it, man, Aerosmith, all of these people who, uh, who perform at that higher level. We, that's our bedrock. That is our cornerstone. And that's why I take it so seriously, because if we lose that, we lose some of our charm in Las Vegas. We, and we lose some of our edge, too, frankly. You know? So that's why I do it. And I love it, too. You know, I enjoyed going. You know? In the years that you've been doing the Cats column, you've had the opportunity to cover a lot of big stories and, and break a lot of big news. What would you say is the biggest story that you've had the opportunity to break? Oh, man, that's hard to say. Um <sighs> Probably, um, I was first to report the death of Jerry Lewis. That was a big one. That was international news. I was the first person to interview Roy Horn when he came back, uh, when he was able to be interviewed after uh, he was the the uh, attack at the uh, at the Mirage. That was a big one. Uh, those are two that really stand out as as uh, as major, uh, really big international stories. Yeah, the Jerry Lewis story went around. I, I judge it by how much response I get with people wanting to interview me. And in both of those instances, <laughs> I had a tough time. Uh, the, the Jerry Lewis story, I had a tough time concentrating on the work I was doing because we didn't, uh, you know, I had to write a column about Jerry Lewis because I knew him. He was a friend of mine and uh, really, and uh, I had to work through that. And I was getting bombarded with international and national media outlets trying to, you know, get comment. And I, I did fulfill a lot of them, but a lot of them I couldn't. And that, that one was the most recent one that really, uh, yeah, that really went up the ladder. You know, I, I might be missing some others, but there, but as far as verifiable break alone on them, those are the ones that, and, and Roy uh, had disclosed to me um, during 
uh, our interview that he had had a, a, a addiction to, to uh, opiates during his care that he had to get over. And uh, him and Siegfried had both over time told me about their version of the attack that has become kind of their, you know, what had become their their account for record and that the whole thing was an accident. The cat was confused and dragged him off the stage out of pure confusion. So that was kind of the first time that explanation had come from Siegfried and Roy. It was in that interview. That was uh, two years after he was uh, he was injured. There have been so many stories that have floated around surrounding um, the Siegfried and Roy incident. And it's interesting that they had that level of trust uh, in you that they were willing to share what they considered to be their official account with you surrounding the incident. Yeah, that's that, that's their version. And I've been questioning myself about that one a lot. Um, I can tell you that um, what's really remarkable, Jeff, about that is that the video never came out. The, never, the video never surfaced. I don't even know if it still exists, the house video of that incident. So all we have is, you know, uh, secondhand accounts from people like Steve Wynn who saw the, that or the people who were inside the room at the time. We don't have the actual official word. I've always felt that the, that the act broke, uh, that Roy was loose, the cat was agitated. Uh, Roy did celebrate his birthday the night before. It was a big party. Um, that happened. He might not have been quite on his game. Um, and the cat reacted accordingly. One thing that they said, though, and this wasn't in that particular interview, it was on the 10th anniversary of it in 2013, that when a big cat gets a hold of you and wants to do, do damage to you, if, if that animal, which was about a 400 or maybe 600 pound animal, monocore, you're finished. You know, if you, if you could watch, you know, I talked to veterinarians about this. Watch a cat, watch a feline work with a, a stuffed animal sometime mm-hmm. and how they handle that. If you imagine a, a 400 pound uh, tiger handling a human being and, you know, moving it around his mouth and stepping on it. He would have, it would have, he would have been finished if that were, I feel, really the motive um, of the cat, but it's all semantics now. You know, it was a tragic event. And those are guys I knew also. I had known Siegfried and Roy over the years and uh, fascinating individuals uh, to say the least and, and uh, broke records that will never be surpassed here in Las Vegas. It's a great point you bring up about the fact that the video has never surfaced. I feel like that is just a, a product of the time period in this day and age. If something like that were to happen, uh, the video would be up online within minutes, if not seconds. But but during that time period, it just that that just wasn't a thing. Oh, no question about it. Even in shows where where phones are uh, are put in the yonder pouch or pouched, you know, you can I, I'm I, I firmly agree that there would have been no question there would have been video of, of that out and it would have changed uh, the reporting of that story. That's one of the biggest changes in my career is, is the advent of uh, social media and phones being used as reporting tools by everybody. You know, everybody's a journalist somehow, you know, so um, you have to you have to be aware of that. But it's a different time and we have to uh, those of us who've lived through all of it have had to adapt to it after the break john shares his thoughts on the impact that sports is having on entertainment in las vegas and we talk about some of the celebrities he's met and whether any of them have ever surprised him that's next on jeff does vegas
Over the time that you've been doing this gig in Las Vegas, you've gotten to meet a lot of really interesting people and become friends with a lot of them as well. Is there anybody that you've met who really kind of surprised you in that you were expecting them to be one thing and they ended up being something totally different from, from what you were expecting? Uh, that happens occasionally. Yeah. You, you kind of, you do keep your, your landscape wide open, you know? Um, I, I was, I'll say on one, I was pleasantly surprised by uh, Celine Dion, to be honest, because, uh, you know, she came into Las Vegas and was at the, you know, this exalted international superstar that had, was, you know, the reason that they re that they built the Coliseum and had done all this renovative work at the at Caesar's Palace. And I'd only known her work. I had only known um, that they were doing this. And uh, when it came time to actually meet her, I, I had expected <laughs> Diva ZX, you know, I, th- I thought that she I didn't feel like she would have much care or uh, uh, regard for me at the time, you know, this is quite a while ago when I when I first talked to her, but I was really struck by how how sincere she was. And I and this goes not just to me directly, but for all the people who were around her, you know, uh, that was when I was very um, I, I was very uh, pleasantly surprised about. I, uh, and uh, also I, I had a chance to meet David Letterman. Uh, a few years ago, um, he was here in town uh, supporting Paul Schaefer's show at the uh, at the uh, Cleopatra's Barge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Schaefer and the Shafe Shifters in there. He was doing a, a kick and lounge gig with David Perico's band and Noibel Gorgoy out of Cuba singing, and it was it was a badass show. It was great, and to generate some interest in it, they were they said they're going to have this special friend guest star of Paul Schaefer come into the show and it was turned out to be David Letterman. So I had a chance to interview David Letterman and Paul Schaefer before. And I expected uh, Letterman to be uh, a lot more standoffish. You know, I had a chance to be with him and I said, okay, let's get this over with. But I was impressed by how inquisitive he was about my, my job. You know, I handed him my card and he goes, Oh yeah. And he goes, what do you do? You know, and I kind of explained it to him. He goes, he sat there and goes, that's a good gig, isn't it? And I go, yeah, you're, it really is, Dave. <laughs> so those are, those are, you know, uh, those are the, some that where I was more pleasantly surprised. I, I, uh, there have been, you know, those who have, have uh, been kind of yike, you know, uh, they don't have much, much uh, time for me or use for me, but uh, nothing, nothing super uh, dramatic. You know, most people are on on their best behavior when they talk to the media, you know. I always love that when it kind of gets turned around on us, like like David Letterman did to you. I had uh, something similar to that happen to me with Alice Cooper. Um, I had a chance to spend about a half an hour interviewing Alice Cooper and and talking to him about music. And at the time, he was doing the Nights with Alice Cooper radio show. And so after we finished talking for a half an hour about music and we were off the air, he came around to the other side of the board and wanted to to kind of see things on my side and then asked me about my radio career and talked to me for like 20 minutes about radio. And in my head, I'm like, this is the most surreal thing I've ever had happen to me. This is bizarre. Alice Cooper is interested in me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I've had, I, I interviewed him not that long ago, a few months ago. Uh, he was doing a series of commercials uh, he was a part of a, a series of celebrities doing commercials for the Dollar Loan Center venue, and they were on a Zamboni machine, which was the 
the loan approval machine and he was riding this driving a zamboni across the ice and he had all the lights and everything up and here comes alice cooper across i mean it was weird and it was funny it was really funny but i i interviewed him after that i'd interviewed him before but i talked to him afterward and one thing about alice cooper very nice very nice guy great golfer i think he might be almost a scratch golfer and he refers to himself as in the third person when he's talking about his stage personality he goes, you know, you know, a lot of people, when they see Alice, they kind of respond a certain way. You know, it's like, it's not like I'm Alice on the golf course, you know? <laughs> but he, he, I can see him doing that. I can see him being that way with you. Um, Vegas is one of these cities that's always kind of in flux. Things are always changing. Things are always on the move, particularly in the entertainment world. In the years that you've been covering it, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen? I think the, the biggest changes have been um, the uh, uh, proliferation of uh, superstar headliners, which have, uh, um, if you look back, let's say you look back about uh, 10, 15 years ago, we had Celine Dion started the, the whole superstar residency uh, culture in theaters uh, in the early 2000, 2002. Up, but after that, it wasn't until about 2013 that Britney Spears opened at the um, what is now Zappos Theater, and they redesigned that theater for her. That created the environment where contemporary stars could run, you know, several weeks, uh, weekends a year in Las Vegas and have success, and it made it okay. When that happened, we had J Lo, Gwen Stefani, Shania Twain, Rod Stewart, Elton John. Uh, all coming into Las Vegas are all, you know, some were playing Zappos, some were playing the Coliseum. We, then they built um, what is now Dolby Live. And that's, you know, home of Lady Gaga and Bruno Mars, uh, Aerosmith, uh, Silk Sonic has been in there. Jason Aldean, Garth Brooks did a run in there. Um, and uh, the Resorts World Theater. The big theater at Resorts World, but built and designed by the same crew that built the, and designed the uh, Coliseum, is is uh, where um, Selena is going to come back. Where Katy Perry, Luke Bryan, and Carrie Underwood have headlined. Where um, David Blaine has headlined. When we have all these theaters now, we have the old joint at the former Hard Rock Hotel, now Virgin uh, Hotel Theater, still activated. We have Carlos Santana at House of Blues doing his thing. When you look at, at how many superstar headliners we have here, that that right there has changed the uh, entertainment landscape irre- uh, irrevocably in Las Vegas. It's created destination shows that are big money for not only the venue, but the hotel, the host hotel and surrounding hotels. Um, we have people coming in multiple times for favorite artists like Britney Spears, for example. We have um, many uh, uh touring shows that stop there as well. So that, that has created, um, that's the biggest change in Las Vegas because it's created the, the marquee names that have enhanced our reputation as the entertainment capital of the world. But on the other side, it's also made it more challenging for, for shows that are not in that strata to survive. And we're talking about some of the Cirque du Soleil shows. We're talking about Spiegel World shows, which are absent, Atomic Saloon Show, Opium, those types of shows, and further, uh, even smaller shows um, to compete. But that, that has changed the, uh, the trajectory of entertainment uh, immensely. We also have a new, uh, the T-Mobile Arena, which has uh, led to the uh, 
Vegas Golden Knights. That has become part of sports entertainment in Las Vegas. And beyond that, we have Allegiant Stadium with the Las Vegas Raiders, where now we have stadium tours stopping in Las Vegas. It wouldn't have stopped here before. We just have Taylor Swift, of course, in March uh, performing there. We had uh, Motley Crue Stadium Tour, Garth Brooks, Rolling Stones in there. Saw them this year and on and on. So we, um, yeah, it's it's a... Uh, even Imagine Dragons played Allegiant uh, uh, Stadium. So those are the big changes. It's the scale of entertainment that's really changed. And it's, it's come at something of a cost because the traditional shows have uh, gone by, some of them gone by the wayside. But that is, uh, that's how we, uh, we present entertainment in Las Vegas today. I was just going to ask about the effect that those large-scale venues and those big um, residency shows have had on some of the smaller, more intimate venues and some of the smaller scale shows. Something that I always really enjoyed going to Las Vegas pre-COVID was the ability to just sort of be able to wander from casino to casino, going in and out of lounges, catching some really amazing live music, and you never really knew what you were going to get, but it was always really entertaining and really amazing. The last few trips that I've made post-COVID, I've noticed that there isn't as much of that available. Is that a fact or is it just, is that something that's just kind of in my head? There are a lot, there are a lot fewer opportunities to, to um, experience what you're talking about on the strip than there used to be. Um, you have to know, you have to uh, pick your spots about where to go. You know, um, there are, they are out there. Uh, you know, the MGM Grand has Losers Lounge. Uh, Mandalay Bay has Rhythm and Riffs, no cover places you can duck into. They also have a, a uh, cabaret little lounge at uh, Mandalay Bay, for example. They have the parlor at the at Mirage is a cool thing. Bellagio has their piano players out front. Um, they're out there if you, if you know where from. That's what Cool Hang Alert is all about. It's trying to find those places and get those out there. More often than than not, you're going to be going off the strip. You're going to be going to station casinos. You're going to be going to places like Arizona Charlie's on uh, Decatur and, and on the uh, on Boulder Highway, uh, you're going to see um, more local locals targeted programming, uh, either low capacity or uh, at low cover or uh, no cover and small capacity. The Copa Room at the Bootlegger Bistro on Mondays is a, is a, the, is that type of place. Although it's a paid ticketed event at Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, they blow the place up. That's a very uh, traditional uh, Las Vegas style gig. Um, but, you know, the, what has happened in these uh, hotel casinos is that each of these uh, lounges are expected to try to make a profit on their own. And that uh, that has created um, the, a climate where unless you can generate either a cover charge or a, a cover charge and bar sales or bar sales alone that will subsidize the band and, and make money for the hotel, you're probably not going to be in there. A classic example is David Perico and, and his Pop Strings band. David has a number of bands, but his his uh, his his main band is the Raiders House Band. They're called David Perico and the Raiders House Band. They play every Sunday at uh, Allegiant Stadium. They went back to Canton, Ohio, and played the Hall of Fame event for Cliff Branch when he was inducted in August. 
uh, killer band. One of the, you know, they're the, those guys, Santa Fe, Fat City, Horns, Lawn, Bronson, All-Star Band. I mean, it goes down the list. They're in that, they're in that uh, category. David came back from COVID, uh, from the shutdown and started performing at um, Red Rock Resort. Rock's Lounge, one of his, his versions of his band. Was, I think it was a seven-piece out there at Rock's Lounge. They wanted to uh, make more money than they had before. They were being paid the same as they had for many years, according to Dave. And uh, they wanted to get, make a little bit more money to pay the musicians. Uh, they couldn't get that money because uh, there's a certain budget for music at Rock's Lounge. So David uh, decided not to play there anymore, and they're doing other bands. If in the old days of Las Vegas, you would just pay, pay for the pay for all those musicians and let um, another department cover you. And that department was usually gambling, your gambling budget. Uh, Gambling isn't what it used to be. It's not the main driver anymore. Uh, You know, retail and and, uh, uh, restaurants are. So. when, when it becomes a requirement for a venue to make money consistently, it puts a lot of pressure on the operator and on the um, acts to generate business. David was a big uh, player at the Cleopatra's Barge, the 10 p.m. shows on the, on the weekends. They needed to install a two-drink minimum for his shows. And if you've ever been in Cleopatra's Barge, to get two drinks served in 90 minutes is a challenge, man. Uh, <laughs> It just is. It's just not easy. If when he packed that place and people are dancing, no servers, you know, they were fighting the good fight, but it was very tough to get two drinks to every single person in that room. It was a tough thing to make money based on that. And when and eventually when the new owners came in to, to Caesars Entertainment, the people from uh, El Dorado, they shut down Cleopatra's Barge. Not only for David, for everybody. And mm-hmm. Wayne Newton in there. They, uh, Rita Rudner was going to have a gig in there. Dionne Warwick had played in there. And so, you know, it was financial. And that's why, you know, I wish that we lived in a world where the, the um, resorts would just pay those bands a salary to be in there and then track and make sure that they understood that the people who were coming into that room were spending money elsewhere in the casino. There's no effective way to do that. There's no app that will say, okay, <clears throat> Okay, John, John Katz comes in to see uh, David Perico at uh, Cleopatra's Barge. But before that, he goes and drops 40 at a machine. After that, he goes and eats at the Palm Restaurant. After that, he might uh, go and make a couple sports bets and hang out at the sports book. You know, I, I, John wouldn't be in there in the first place if it weren't for the David Perico experience. And maybe John's here in a room because David's here. You know, that... That's. I would like to see a more um, accurate and, and a deeper pre- appreciation for the business that these um, the, these bands, especially, bring to the hotels. But until then, we're just seeing them kind of dwindle away. Le Cabaret at Paris, a really fun live music venue, uh, has been shut down. There's there's been a number of them that have been closed. What do you think the impact has been of sports on the entertainment? world in las vegas i mean i know you alluded to it a little bit earlier with the the vegas golden knights and i mean i've been to several nights games and it is it's an entertainment experience in and of itself but now with the raiders in there and the knights and now f1 coming next year and super bowl coming people do have a limited budget to spend and tickets for a lot of those events are not cheap by any stretch of the imagination as vegas becomes more of a sports destination do you think we're going to see even more of these destination headliner residency acts coming in? 
That's an interesting issue because we consider sports to be entertainment now. You know, this is this is uh, how um, how the city treats the Raiders and the Golden Knights, especially. Uh, I go back to what Derek Stevens said when he opened up uh, the uh, Circa Sportsbook at Circa. I was asking him if uh, if if the hotel uh, generally was going to have a showroom. And he said, no, we, we'll, we'll do something on the pool deck. You know, we'll have DJs and, and performances out there from time to time. But we consider sports at our scale to be entertainment. And he also runs a downtown Las Vegas event center. So if you need concerts and, you know, festivals, you'll have that out there. Um, I think this, we, we will see uh, people going to more sporting events in place of, of live entertainment, specifically in Las Vegas, as we move forward. If we get an NBA team, that'll certainly be the case. The Golden Knights have had a profound effect on, on how people spend time and money in Las Vegas recreationally because they do so many games uh, per year. Um, I think it's 44 and uh, home games, including the preseason, at 18,000 per night. And uh, that can only have an effect on um, the viability of other uh, other forms of entertainment. And I hear this complaining all the time from uh, from shows, from smaller shows. Like, you know, a, a good example would be like when Human Nature was at the Venetian, uh, the Australian Motown Act. They had a, a residency, what was called the Sand Showroom in, in those days. And they, um, they were, you know, cruising right along. And then the Golden Knights opened and they saw a drop in their ticket sales. And they said this in real time. They said, we're, we're noticing that there are more people who are, who are going to spend their money on, on the sports than they're going to come down and see human nature. And they eventually moved off their residency right as COVID took hold and are performing um, just occasionally uh, at the South Point showroom. Off the, it's on Las Vegas Boulevard, but not a strip hotel. A uh, lot fewer dates, uh, but still selling out those dates. So we're seeing a lot of adjustment that way. Off-strip places taking on entertainers who used to be on the strip, uh, fewer shows, but they're still out there if you know where to find them. John, if uh, people want to find you online, read your article, listen to your podcast, uh, follow you on social media, how can they go about doing that? The best way is uh, my Twitter account is at Johnny Katz. My Instagram is at Johnny Katz one uh, I'm on the homepage of the Review Journal, reviewjournal.com. Uh, and uh, I, as I say, I'm on page 3A every day and online all the time. And uh, follow me, pick it up. And, um, you know, uh, all I can tell you is there's, it's, we're updated frequently in every which way. And if you want to know about Las Vegas, uh, you know, I'm a good place to start. Excellent, John. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great being here, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> In addition to John's column in the Las Vegas Review Journal and his Twitter and Instagram feeds, be sure to check out his podcast, Podcats, where he dives into the Vegas entertainment scene, chatting with all the big names, sharing their stories. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And of course, I've got all these links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. 
If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. Oh, 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 oh,